Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Welcome to our discussion on um, the EU-US uh, agreements and disagreements on the flows of data. Highly topical and critical issue for um, the European economy, for the US economy, and for uh, transatlantic cooperation. My name is Tom White, one of the directors of Global Council, responsible for our advisory services in Brussels. I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague, Franck Thomas, from our technology, media, and telecoms practice, but also Anna Michelle Asimakapulo, MEP for the European People's Party and Vice Chair of the European Parliament's Committee on International Trade, who, crucial, who plays a crucial role in policymaking on transatlantic trade cooperation. Also pleased to be joined in Brussels by John Verdi, the Senior Vice President of Policy at the Future of Privacy Forum. Uh, sorry, John is actually in, uh, in in Washington, I believe, today. And he's uh, from, from the Future of Privacy Forum, a very important think tank, but also played a role in the Obama administration dealing with data issues and transatlantic cooperation. We also have Guido Lobrano, Director General of the Information Technology Industry Council, a very important representative of a number of different players in um, in industry, and Luca Bution, Policy Director from Scaleway, uh, a very important innovative provider of cloud computing services in Europe. Very pleased everyone could join us. I worked myself when I was a government official on the original uh, GDPR negotiations, where already we saw a preview of some of the choices Europe was going to face in what we now articulate as being open strategic autonomy, where you want your businesses and your consumers to have access to the most important business and other networks around the world. But you also want to preserve the ability to regulate and particularly regulating something as important and sensitive as personal data. And that has faced no greater challenge than in negotiations with the United States, where of course, an adequacy decision has required some form of additional regime within the United States, rather than assessing the US's approach to data protection as a whole, which has been one of the reasons why this has been so complicated, um, but also one of the reasons why we've had periodic periods of uncertainty about the trading relationship, as there have been legal challenges and other obstacles. But I think what we see in the agreement reached earlier this year are important signs of how some of the questions may be resolved. But also we've learned a bit, I think, about how the US and the EU want to work together during the current policy cycle on, on both sides. Um, before we go into some of those big strategic and practical questions, my colleague Franck is going to give a quick overview of where we stand um, and the status of the agreement that was reached in March before we come to um, bigger debate. Franck, over to you. Thanks, Tom. So for, for those who are not following this for, for years and years, so we used to have an agreement called the Safe Harbor Agreement. So this agreement essentially underpins the legal transfer of European personal data to the US. And unfortunately for those companies who were using the Safe Harbor Agreement, that agreement was struck down by the EU Court of Justice. So what happened then? The EU and the US renegotiated the Safe Harbor and transformed it into a privacy shield. This was a new improved agreement that essentially served the same purpose, 
But this agreement was supposed to be more robust in the protection uh, provided to European citizens. But actually, the privacy shield faced a similar fate to the safe harbor agreement and was likewise struck down by the Court of Justice two years. So since then, we are in a very strange situation where there is legal ambiguity about the legality of this data transfer, while at the same time, the EU and the US are negotiating a new privacy shield, a privacy shield 2.0. So that brings us to uh, uh, today's event. So at the end of March, we had the, the announcement of a deal about the renegotiation of the EU-US privacy shield. But we quickly realized that it was not a deal at all. It's a deal to say that there may be a deal in the future. And then the, the US published what was called an agreement in principle. So, which seems to be something like a quasi-deal. So now we need to wait until the summer when the European Commission is expected to publish a draft deal, the so-called draft adequacy decision. But this is not the final step. There will be a ratification process at EU level after the summer break. And then the European Commission is expected to adopt its final decision at the end of the year. So as you see, uh, Tom, it's very, still a long journey to go to have this new EU-US uh, data transfer mechanism. Thank you, Franck. So we're clearly having this discussion at a very timely moment in the process. Anna Michelle, I, I could come to you from a political perspective, maybe to say, you know, in the big picture, is this a, is this a win for, for Europe in its attempt to set the global standards? I mean, the short answer is yes. You know, this is, this is politically very important. And I think that I don't think I need to explain to this audience how important data flows are and how they they're only increasing in importance when we're talking about a you know a more digitally connected and sustainable society data flows are essential to businesses so is certainty around data flows. So businesses on both sides of the Atlantic are, are very much waiting for a solution to this. Essentially, we've been operating in a pretend world, I think, since since Schrems knocked it down again and pretending that, okay, you know, everything will be fine. Um, and now we can, you know, we can start again. Now, it's kind of nebulous, you know, what this means. I actually, I was really impressed by the fact that, that you know, I, I didn't realize that the data transfer relationship between the EU and the US, for example, is worth seven trillion. I mean, I didn't realize the magnitude of how this is affected. I also didn't realize that, you know, that that the impact on this uh, on this in terms of of results could be also in the billions. Uh, so so this is really a very, very important issue. And I think that that companies being faced with legal uncertainty and complexity at the more at the moment are having a very difficult time. In fact, I, I also read a study that my office gave me commissioned by Digital Europe, which showed that this is what I was telling you I'm impressed about reversing these trends and harnessing the power of international data transfers. Europe could be two trillion better off and gain two million jobs by the end of the digital decade. So from a trade from a pers- from my perspective, this is a critical issue. So let's start with that. Now, um, where is this going to go? Uh, I think it's very important that it actually goes somewhere. I mean, I think we need to see this agreement. And I think I know that from from colleagues that I talk to across the Atlantic also, that a lot of thought is going into, into how this solution is going to be crafted. However, that doesn't mean that it'll, you know, it'll be smooth sailing, no matter what it includes. So I think that, you know, I'm looking forward to the first step. I'm looking forward to what it says. I'm looking forward to the DPA agreement. But at the same time, 
I'm also expecting and anticipating that there will be a very heated political debate about this and the limits of it and privacy issues. And maybe I'm anticipating the question you're going to pose, I'm sure, about what Parliament's going to do and if there's going to be another resolution like there was in the past. Uh, I seriously doubt that this is going to go, you know, go through without Parliament wanting to express <laughs> its views on it. Just like I'm quite certain that, you know, once all this is said and done, it, we're going to be in the courts again. But at least that'll give us, you know, that'll give us more clarity for a certain period of time. Now, having said that, I, you know, and coming back to the politics of all this, I, I just have to say that, you know, everything has to be put into context. And for, for me, the U.S. is the EU's, you know, closest and most powerful ally. And the transatlantic relationship is absolutely essential for me. So I think that working together in this rules-based system makes the world a safer and a better place for all of us. So if we get this wrong every time, then many of the things that we take for granted are going to just go like economic and security cooperation are under threat. So that leads me to another aspect, which is equally crucial. As you know, as as recent events in Ukraine have demonstrated to, to all of us, um, our shared connectivity is is an imperative in, in the face of growing geopolitical and economic threats from other actors that don't share our values. So that means that as policymakers from like-minded democracies, we have, I think, a duty to come up with something that works. And uh, at this particular moment in time, um, you know, we've seen unprecedented EU-US cooperation with respect to export controls and sanctions vis-a-vis Russia and the TTC, even though, you know, I know it doesn't address this particular issue in and of itself, but you see that you know it, it's it's become an excellent forum for dialogue, and um, I think that all of this has been helping us be proactive. I'm delighted that this deal was announced, and now I want it to become real. And uh, from my perspective, uh, and I know I'm speaking for many colleagues in the parliament, we're going to be very vocal and very supportive, provided that the solution is you know realistic and and uh, within the the confines that we're all expecting. Thank you. So that's a very, very categorical answer. It definitely is a win for the for the EU, um, both, both because of the economic significance, where, as you said, it, we're looking at sectors way beyond what we think of as the internet economy here. It's a, a very important for all sectors, but also geopolitically. And I think that's a good moment perhaps to come to you, John, having um, worked on the, the transatlantic relationship yourself. Does, is this a sign that the, the West is, is back and can do business together uh, between Europe and um, and the U.S. Well, I don't think we ever left. I, I I think it's a sign that we're going to continue to do business together, and we're going to continue to support our shared democratic values. I, I I think that that is is absolutely a signal, and I think you're absolutely right on that front. Just to to add a little bit um, to the discussion, completely agree about you know a trillion plus dollars in um uh you know cross border uh, data flows. Seven trillion plus in the overall economic relationship. Obvious commercial value there. Obviously, um, I, I think shared democratic um, values and um, a lot of cooperation outside the data space in the past few months more than ever. Um, a few other things that I'd like to, to perhaps highlight. Um, when one looks at the original safe harbor agreement and then the privacy shield agreement, 
And one drills down on the sorts of companies who participated in that agreement and continue to participate in that agreement and will participate in, in a future deal. Um, I know we have an, an agreement in principle, but we'll, we'll move forward to, to cross the T's and dot the I's, I think. Um, I think it's important to appreciate that um, global EU-based and US-based companies derive major benefits from these cross-border data flows, and often in ways that we don't appreciate um, when we think about giant global tech firms and the most advanced technologies and, and, and the most sensitive data transfers. So just a couple of examples of, of how this arrangement and how these cross-border data flows supports um, both economic cooperation and, and uh, shared democratic values. Many companies, many EU-based firms, many global firms, many US-based firms use these sorts of relationships and use the safe harbor, the privacy shield, the privacy shield 2.0 um, deals to transfer information for human resources purposes so that brands that are based in Europe can pay their employees in the United States, can ensure that those folks have the health insurance and the life insurance and the benefits to which they are entitled. The kind of everyday quotidian data transfers that it takes to operate a business. These don't make headlines. They're not parts of the big debates about global tech platforms and privacy and data protection. But they are absolutely crucial to our ability to treat individuals, companies, and organizations across the Atlantic um, as partners rather than adversaries as we work together on a day-to-day -day basis. I think it's also important to highlight um, that this is not a one-way relationship in terms of a data transfer agreement. It is genuinely a bilateral agreement in which US-based firms, EU-based firms, firms based elsewhere, um, all participate and all benefit from these data flows. So um, I, I think that as we think about these issues moving forward, it is a genuine partnership. It is a partnership that we value in the United States. Um, it is a partnership that we are committed to. And I would flag that, that um, our friends in the EU have done a tremendous amount of work to make these cross-border frameworks workable and practical for everyone involved. And we in the United States are committed to doing the same. So we understand it takes work from companies. It takes work on the political side. It takes work from, from folks like me at think tanks to, to get in there and, and be as helpful as we possibly can. Um, and that hard work is worth it. I was just struck what you said about the practical benefits for um, for businesses. And I think that's a good chance to bring in Guido and thinking about your um, uh, companies that you represent. Um, you know, is, is this a great... Is business relieved at, at this? Has it has it felt like the um, moment of certainty that that some of us are hoping it is? The importance of this cannot be overstated. I mean, we've heard already some some numbers. I think you know an additional number that gives us a bit of the measure of the importance is uh, that we're talking about 16 million people's jobs as well. You know, on top of the trillions of euros in value between. Europe and the United States. Um, I, I, I quite like the way MEPS Yamakopoulos has, has put it. I'm delighted, but I want it to become real. Uh, I think you know, that, that sums it up pretty well for, for all of us. Uh, you know, we're talking about uh, an essential aspect of international business operations, a mechanism that was enabling cross-border data flows 
and innovation and providing more clarity and privacy protections. And this is relevant for, for all companies, not only for US firms. I think you know, this is a point that sometimes is uh, underestimated. Uh, when the privacy shield was invalidated in 2020, it has created legal uncertainty for more than 5,000 organizations that were certified under the privacy shield, uh, but also for the whole ecosystem. Uh, for nearly two years, all the industries that were conducting transatlantic business, including SMEs and startups operating both in Europe and the United States, and, and, uh, and United States have juggled this continued uncertainty, or you know, as, as Frank has put it before, this, this ambiguity in, in the situation. Uh, this is something that uh, uh, you know, has impacted uh, companies that were trading, researchers that will be sharing information with their foreign colleagues, companies that communicate uh, with uh, their uh, European staff online, uh, or that engage in countless routine operational tasks. Um, without a long-term solution, we feel this could really uh, negatively impact business competitiveness and innovation, particularly at the moment where uh, you know, we are in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis, and we hopefully enter the economic recovery phase. Uh, this announcement is also coming amidst, uh, amidst the war as NATO leaders were gathered in Brussels to address Russia and Ukraine. So this is really underscoring the importance of this issue to the global economy. Uh, one, one also new thing that we've learned in, announce, in the announcement is uh, the new name, you know, the Transatlantic Data Privacy Framework. Uh, the goal of this framework is clearly to provide privacy protections for citizens. Uh, but also create durable legal certainty for, for those businesses that are moving data uh, and avoid disruptions to the essential business operations that, that we've, you know, we've been discussing so far. So my conclusion is this. You know, we already knew that negotiations were going forward, of course. Um, so we are still waiting now for the negotiators to finalize the deal. But the announcement by Presidents von der Leyen and Biden is a clear commitment that not only gives us certainty, but also adds additional pressure to get those negotiations across the finish line swiftly. Is there anything in the agreement itself that, and I may put the same question to Lucas, but is there anything in the agreement itself that, that concerns you or worries you that you think maybe need, needs to be uh, addressed? We haven't seen the text, of course, you know, only the negotiators have seen the text. Uh, I think what we can say is that uh, after two defeats at the Court of Justice, it's only natural that one wants to be cautious. Uh, and uh, that there are some concerns because no one wants to have a negative Trump's free decision. There will be a decision. Um, we trust it will be positive. You know, this being said, we don't believe that the US and the EU would have announced a political agreement unless they felt confident that all legal concerns would be addressed. Uh, both parties know what's at stake uh, as much as our industry does. We have full confidence that they really wouldn't agree to something that wasn't up to scratch. Um, a final agreement would you know, take, uh, should clearly take privacy, security, and economic considerations in account, uh, while also encouraging transparent and appropriate enforcement. Uh, it has to address the concerns uh, around uh, US national security access to data, and also it has to address questions around uh, uh, what is an adequate regress, redress mechanism for European citizens. Um, so, you know, I think summing it up, it is premature to talk about concerns of legal robustness when no one has seen the new, first of all, the new US executive order uh, and also the accompanying regulations. But the very fact that there will be something new with new commitments, new limitations on US signals intelligence and new protections 
Uh, all of these meant to specifically address the concerns by the Court of Justice, I think, you know, is enough to give us the confidence that the Commission will be able to throw up uh, a very strong adequacy decision. Of course, we are, we are getting to that point where negotiators turn from negotiating with each other to um, negotiating with themselves to try and sell the agreement to their own domestic stakeholders. Um, so I'd, I'd like us to come on to looking at some of the scenarios after the sort of rat- ratification implementation, but maybe... Um, Anna Michelle, you, you said you'd be willing to just give us a little bit of a flavour of how the file will be handled in the Parliament. And um, clearly, there's a we still need the, the Commission to provide its, its advice. But could you give us a little bit of colour of how you see the um, ratification scrutiny playing out from, from your perspective? First, we have to see what this is about. But I can tell you three things. One, there's going to be plenty of appetite to talk about it because everybody on the panel said this is a really this is a really hot topic this is really important this is going to you know be very important and and so it's going to be a hot topic so i can't imagine the parliament is going to just not react to this um secondly as you know um the union the european union has a lot of ambition in in leading when it comes to standard setting in general so we we certainly did showed that with GDPR. We showed that we you know we've we've now achieved DMA and DSA. The AI Act is being discussed, data governance, the Data Act. So there's you know there's going to be a lot of stuff going on, and clearly we're going to want to see how these pieces of legislation are affected or affect whatever comes out of the Commission when it you know when it comes to the to this uh, to this new proposal. So. The second, so the first thing is it's it's an important topic. The second thing is there's a lot of stuff going on legislatively that um, is going to influence the way we we look at it. And um, you know, and thirdly, clearly, this has you know, e- even though I like to look at it through the the, the lens of practicality and of, you know, tangible benefits and problems that it creates. Uh, It also has, let's say, a political and ideological flavor as a topic. Um, And therefore that, you know, in politics always creates some additional traction. So like I said, I can't exactly predict how it's going to go, but I I do know that it's going to be an item pretty high up on the agenda. And it also depends on the timing when this actually comes out. I mean, I I don't know if, you know, if if really we're going to see something by July, that'd be really nice, you know, but, um, but I don't know how that's going to play out. It's it's very interesting when you think about the the timing of the ratification this time around compared to the earlier agreements, because obviously we, as you say, we have a lot more sense of what Europe is doing to sure. stimulate its own data economy with the AI yeah. Act, but also in yeah. investing in the GAIA-X project and so on. We also we also, we also also have a dialogue going on, you know, through this TTC, which like I said before, it's not, there may be not, you know, a, a, a part of TTC that's exactly on point, but a lot of parts are, you know, are around the point. And so hopefully that'll that'll help the process. I hope that'll give it more impetus and more substance. And more finality, and which is what we need, I think, more. And I guess it depends on the, on the states, too. I mean, you know, I mean, clearly you're going to have to address some of these concerns with the redress mechanism is a big issue, I'm, and it's going to be a big issue. And, and also, let me just close by saying, you know, politically, because, you know, I have constituents, and this is, this is a topic people care about. This is not a topic that, I mean, they are just indifferent about. 
uh, whether people have whether there's access to their data. So when you frame it uh, largely around that, then people do have opinions on this. It's not, you know, they don't look at it as I mean, John had a really good example, which was, you know, oh, come on, this is just, you know, we, we need to have transatlantic business. And so we need to pay our people. So people get really nervous when you start talking about their data in any context. And you know, for every one of these, let's say, down-to-earth business cases that you'll put on the table, they'll put five other cases where they feel that, you know, they're at risk in some way or another. So that's a very important overview of some of the opposition that it's going to face um, or the areas where more clarity is wanted. What I was hoping to get to is that there's also a sort of new constituency that says, actually, we've we've got a strong enough sort of data sovereignty now here in here in Europe, or we want to be developing that capability. Can't we just replace that dependence on the on the US? Maybe not in every one of the use cases that, that John was talking about, but that in some cases, actually having independence in Europe is is now a, a clear achievable objective. Would would you see that that is also a, a credible position that needs to be taken into account or um, is is that less uh, less relevant? So thinking aside from the, um, the the privacy constituency who are concerned to protect the individual, those who say actually you want to protect European industry. Um, and it'll be interesting to get to get Lucas's view on this. Um, but is is that a an important voice in the in the parliament that could become a, a barrier here? I mean, yes, it is, of course. I mean, you know, this this there's a big this discussion of call it whatever you want, strategic autonomy, call it, you know, call it data, call it the digital sovereignty, call it whatever you want and and give it whatever definition you want, because in the Brussels bubble, all these terms, as you know, are sufficiently vague to make everybody happy, but at the same time, uh, you know, try to try to try not to not, not to scare people. But um, yes, of course, of course, this is, and this is a valid concern. And, you know, clearly the, both the um, pandemic and the war in Ukraine have made these concerns even more valid, and that doesn't leave data out of it. And um, just, I mean, if you say Gaia X in the parliament, you'll get a big heated debate uh, about, you know, the benefits of it and how open it should be and et cetera. And when you talk about um, data and when you bring up China in the context of, of data, uh, you'll get a big debate. So all these issues are very important. Um, and all these issues are going to be part of the dialogue. Now, I, I, I think I was very clear in the beginning to, to explain that I think that, you know, we're, we're like-minded um, partners and an important, the most important partners. And I think that our relationship should be the defining one in all these issues and we should work together. Um, and of course, we'll have our own concerns. We're going to face this in the CHIPS Act, for example. Okay. When we, when we come up with the CHIPS Act, we have a TTC discussion on this. Everybody, we're each doing our own thing. We can't end up hurting each other. We have to end up helping each other. So when we talk about digital sovereignty in a European context, yes, that'll be part of the equation, but that doesn't mean that we can't find a solution uh, with our transatlantic partners that makes us happy. Maybe this is a good point to bring in Lucas. So you're you're part of this um, European ecosystem um, providing uh, relevant services. Um, how how do you see this debate affecting affecting you? Is it um, uh, create? Does it give you greater um, confidence in your in your business model, or does it? How, how does it affect your um, confidence? 
Well, uh, as a, of course a French-based and European-based cloud service provider, and uh, Europe uh, being in the in in a way uh, only at the beginning of the acceleration of cloud adoption uh, by all the economic players in, on the continent, we have uh, on our side plenty of reasons to be uh, uh, to be actually confident. And uh, I'm not saying that uh, referring to the fact that uh, an absence of uh, uh, transatlantic agreement would be. Uh, uh, like you know, a source uh, of opportunity, but uh, also because uh, we have been reaching, we scale but all the rest of the tech ecosystem in Europe have been reaching uh, collectively in the last few years a level of maturity, uh, which is enabling us actually to answer probably yeah, 80, 90 percent of the use cases on the markets. So that, that's the first thing. But um, co coming back to uh, your point on data sovereignty, and uh, uh, I think what was said previously is uh, definitely correct. We hear every day about digital sovereignty, but nobody knows how to define it. And the more you hear about it, the less you understand, the least you understand. So uh, when we talk to uh, to our clients, typically, of course, the, this term sovereignty, it's really more uh, concretely about how they can control their dependencies related to data, how they can identify more or less exhaustively the risks associated with uh, uh, data transfer, data processing, uh, and uh, how they can, after identification of risk, how they can, if needs be, uh, mitigate those risks. And uh, um, typically, of course, we could say that uh, being a French and European player under uh, you know European jurisdiction, uh, this concept of, of data sovereignty would play well with a scaleways business offer. But I would say that most of all, it plays well with uh, our clients' expectations uh, and risingly uh, uh, that are risingly uh, re um, related to you know data protection, uh, privacy issues. Uh, can I control where my where my data are? Uh, who can access and so on. So uh, we see those rising concerns as well uh, from the client side, and I think beyond Scaleway and, and our. Uh, Business offers. That's really what uh, what what matters here. And uh, uh, referring to personal data, but not only personal data, actually, because uh, that's probably one 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 uh, one thing to to dig further at national and EU level. It's even more the issue of uh, um, of sensitive data, which is at stake. Because uh, of course, uh, and you used uh, I think Tom uh, an interesting word uh, right before talking about you know. Uh, uh, replacing the transatlantic flows, uh, which could be a synonym of, you know, uh, sovereignty. For us, the thing is really not about replacing, you know, or having like a, an isolationist approach when it comes to, uh, you know, data flows. It's really about uh, developing alternatives, providing further choices to the developers, to the to the cloud users, and actually rebalancing the current lack of sovereignty because that's and the current lack of independence because that's really for us where the, and for many of our clients where the problem lies so uh, it's not about replacing not about doing it on our own it's really about uh, rebalancing uh, which in our view is also good for the transatlantic relation because in a way if we want to be good sparring partners of the us in the whole geopolitical circus that we know today uh, we need to grow up uh, and develop more credible uh, alternatives. That's interesting. I mean, you're, you're saying effectively that although we're all focused here on what the um, agreement is going to enable or incentivize or prevent, you're saying that actually there is a, there's a market shift underway as well, that um, 
customers are also thinking differently about how much they want to be moving data internationally anyway um, and that that may be just as important for um, the development of a of a European system as as any sort of top-down political um, decision making so there are raising concerns indeed but uh, or yeah raising uh, raising level of awareness on those topics and that's where uh, and that's where actually the lack of predictability for the clients is extremely detrimental because indeed safe harbor has been uh, put away. Same goes with privacy shields. Now we already know that uh, uh, MaxFrames, given the lack of details we have so far uh, beyond the announcements, will be probably, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm not in the secrets of anything, but uh, we've read, uh, we have all read that uh, uh, actions will be taken by, by these NGOs, meaning that in the, be, beyond the the, the advancements of the negotiations and beyond the political declarations, uh, our clients typically are likely to stay in, a, in in an uncertain situation for the next few months and probably even years, which is an issue because uh, they are adopting cloud right now. And this acceleration of cloud adoption in Europe between, will be between now and probably 2027. 2030 maximum. So, uh, how can we uh, make sure that those companies, those users, will uh, they will reap the fullest benefits of what cloud technologies can offer to their digital transformation? And that's where uh, developing or promoting alternatives that already exist, and it's not about excluding uh, over non-European players, but can be a good complementary, uh, a good complement uh, to mitigate this level of uncertainty resulting from both legal and political discussions and fine-tunings. Okay, so we, we will see some continued pressures for, 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 for decoupling across the Atlantic. Maybe, John, I could come, come back to you just thinking about what you said, that this is a, and it's renamed as a, a framework, it's about the two-way flow of data, it's a reciprocal arrangement, it's not just about US firms and, um, and, and EU citizens' data. Um, do, do you see any um, barriers or political reasons for concern on the, on the US side? Now, we're all familiar with um, President Biden's agenda around uh, made in America and reshoring activity. Do you do you think there's any tension between that agenda and the agreement that we're we're waiting to see? I, I don't. I I think those are complementary. And my view is that the this administration um, and uh, most folks in this space understand that the free flow of data globally supports um, uh, business activities and. More importantly, individuals' access to services in the U.S., in the EU, and around the world, right? And you know, I talked a little bit about you know human resources data and payroll data and the, and the quotidian day to day of um, how companies operate in a global environment and how can, they can operate efficiently, how they can make sure that employees and others are respected and protected, right? But but let's also talk about some of the top level. Data transfers that, that we think about um, when we do um, consider the question of cross-border data transfers, transatlantic data transfers, right? Let's think about communications, right? Communications between individuals in the United States and Europe, between folks in Europe and the United States and around the world are crucial to maintaining the family, friends, connections between loved ones who may not physically be in the same place at the same time. And you can't run global communications infrastructure without cross-border and transatlantic data transfers. You can't do it. There are many around the world today, and I'm not pointing the finger at just one country, but there are many around the world today um, who would rather see fewer connections 
and more misinformation and disinformation, more filter bubbles rather than more um, honest discussion and debate between and amongst individuals. And we have a tradition here in the United States. Our friends in Europe have a tradition in Europe um, that is diametrically opposed to those sorts of anti-democratic and, and in my view, anti-individualistic movements. So I think the Biden administration is exactly on board with a, a an agenda that supports cross-border data flows in a free, fair, and protected way, in a trusted way. Um, the biggest challenges, Tom, we, we, and, and you fight challenges, the biggest challenges are uh, going to be marshalling the various pieces of the U.S. political system in order to execute on some of these commitments, like redress, right? We have a job to do here in the United States, not just in the White House, but at executive agencies, perhaps in Congress and elsewhere in the U.S. political system. And we have work to do. I know um, I, I, I appreciate um, the candor in, in which my colleague talked about the process over in Europe. I understand you folks have work to do, too, to get this thing ratified. Um, to me, the political challenges are based around executing on these commitments. It's not based around a commitment to these principles. I think the commitment to these principles is clear and strong. And if, if we think about the challenges from bureaucratic inertia of trying to implement that, that redress system. Do you think that the risk that was highlighted by some of the other speakers of a legal challenge in the EU, which, which could even be done before the, the US even gets to that point of implementing, um, do, do you think that will give rise to a pause on the, on the US side in implementation or will they sort of have enough confidence in the judgment of the European negotiators that any any challenge can be overcome. I, I, I would not want to say that, that there will be confidence that any challenge can be overcome. Um, I would say that uh, categorically, I don't think there will be a pause on the work. Um, while the Schrems one case was pending, we continued to work at the U.S. Department of Commerce and, and across executive agencies to support and expand the safe harbor program. While the Schrems two case was pending, we continued to work to support and expand the Privacy Shield program. I don't see any sign that the U.S. government will um, lose courage on this front and cease work on implementation. In fact, I think it provides strong incentives for that to work to move forward in a timely and serious way. That, that's that's my view for sure. Now, the outcome of future legal proceedings, I can't speak to that. Thank you. I was really trying to understand from the, if we think about the different scenarios, what the implications are. And I think that is, um, that, that's very clear. I mean, maybe Guido, I could, I could come back to you. And if we're thinking about this scenario where we have a, you know, perhaps a legal challenge hanging over, um, the, uh, the agreement. And if we have a, um, a, a bit of that bifurcation or that decoupling that, that Lucas was talking about, do you, do you see the consequences of that as being serious or, or manageable? What a, how, how big an issue will that? Potentially be. Thanks for that. I was thinking about this, you know, while we were speaking before, and I think also in terms of you know, how we look at this, the, the, the significance of the relationship that we talked about earlier um, is not going to magically disappear when we talk about sovereignty or autonomy or, or localization and decoupling. Um, and also, uh, you know, there was, I think, a question about European services potentially replacing non-European ones. I think, you know, the right approach is making sure that there is a possibility of choosing. You know, there is choice. It's not about replacing one with the other, but about having choice. And you know, then users will decide what is best uh, if everything is you know is done according to the rules. Uh, now, this being said, uh, we we strongly believe 
localization or, or decoupling is not. It is not the solution and, and is not a solution. You know, privacy and cybersecurity are often mentioned as classifications for data localization requirements, but there really is no logical nexus between the location of the data and the security or the protection of the data. Uh, on the other hand, there have been countless economic studies that point to the negative consequences of data localization for the European economy more broadly. Um, not to mention the fact that you know any retreat from globalization, particularly by the European Union, that is you know, whose very existence is grounded on the belief uh, of open markets, this would be a very odd outcome, uh, and it would be really bad for the European economy. Uh, among other consequences, one very significant uh, risk would be that uh, of, of you know of choosing for localization. Um, is that we, we would see possibly the same approach reverberating globally with other countries around the world uh, implementing localization requirements, which would be a problem for the European uh, providers and other foreign companies. Which is already the case, by the way. I mean, in the cloud, uh, in the cloud sector, you have uh, data localization basically on each and every continent, be it in China. Well, China, it's of course an extreme case, but if you go to India, Brazil, uh, South Korea, uh, you already have, unfortunately, those data localization everywhere. And that's where, actually, of course, uh, we derive a bit from a privacy-based uh, discussion to, towards an industrial uh, kind of discussion. But that's where, uh, in terms of uh, level playing field uh, and reciprocal treatments, we, 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 we have issues. So uh, imitating the rest of the world might not be the, or mimicking the rest of the world might not be the best ever solution, of course. Uh, but we need to take stock of what's already the case. Uh, and in our, in our sector, unfortunately, data localization is uh, is, is there and should stay. Exactly, which is why the European Union, you know, it's uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult to challenge those approaches if the European Union is also one of those places where localization uh, requirements exist. Um, and, you know, if we wanted to be a bit more provocative, we could also ask what problem data localization solution is trying to solve. You know, if it's, uh, if it's intelligence, uh, then the new transatlantic framework is meant to solve that. Um, if it's investment, we already see a lot of international businesses that have uh, massive data centers in Europe, uh, and many are building new ones to continue uh, and continue to announce investment. Uh, so I, uh, this being said, uh, as we discussed earlier, I think you know, there is less and less uncertainty as we approach this final deal. Uh, what we're seeing, however, is that there are a number of requirements in new European proposals that, if not properly thought, might in practice creation requirements, not specifically for personal data, but uh, also for non-personal data, uh, where fundamental rights concerns are, are much less so. Maybe if I pick up on a couple of the questions that we've had coming in for, from the um, audience, the first of them is um, around uh, the other big global economic power of, of China. Um, and I know um, a couple of you have alluded to um, the, the different approaches between um, the handling of data in the US and the EU and, and how it's handled in China. But um, is, is part of this agreement intending to create a, a clear alternative framework for um, handling data? You know, how, how much of it is an attempt by um, the EU and the US to essentially create global standards that China maybe is then pushed to follow or is is excluded from. Um, I'm open for any of you to, to pick it up, um, but I, I might suggest, uh, John, in the, in the first instance, given um, that uh, the geostrategic initiatives is, issues that you flagged at the beginning. 
So, so, so I, I can't speak to the motivations, um, but I can speak to the effect. And, and I think you're exactly right that, that this, um, this framework, other framework works like, like the cross-border privacy rules um, in the APAC region um, offer concrete, practical, workable alternatives to a data localization model that China in some ways pioneered and continues to pursue today. So, so I, I think in terms of effect, um, this is a robust model. We know that um, many nations, many groups of nations around the world are grappling with these cross-border data flows and data protection issues today. And it is absolutely crucial that the United States, our friends in Europe, and others around the world present an alternative to a um, segmented, localized, top-down command and control model um, that, that exists in China. Uh, and indeed, actually, if we look at the, what's on the agenda of the, the what is on the agenda of the TTC? You can see there are a number of other areas where um, the EU and the US working together could 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 create standards that create a stronger um, alternative to the to the Chinese approach. Um, I have another question that's more about the um, opportunity that might be unlocked by the uh, by, by by a putative agreement in this area. Um, it may be more for you, uh, Guido. Just that we've had a a lot of discussion about, um, you know, what's what's already um, subject to cross-border flow and the examples that we were discussing of everyday alternatives. And actually, you just mentioned about non-personal data and some of these areas. But could we see, um, well, I suppose, are there, are there members that you're working with who now see a new opportunity? Or is it more about just the removal of, of a risk? How much, how much is this an upside as well as just removing a downside? I think it's both. I mean, clearly, you know, the immediate need is to remove the current uncertainty and address the specific concerns that, you know, that the Court of Justice ruling has, uh, has put in front of all. Uh, at the same time, I think, you know, there, there will be a number of elements in the new agreement that have maybe broader ramifications. And so again, you know, to my example of non-personal uh, data flows, which you know are provisions that we now see being discussed uh, um, to a certain degree in the Data Governance Act, which relates primarily to data that come from the public sector, and now in the currently discussed Data Act, uh, that you know specific for non-personal data. I think you know some of the solutions that we see probably probably being being agreed upon in the transatlantic framework might have ramifications that will facilitate uh, data flows more, more broadly. Uh, certainly, you know, whatever the European Union and the US will agree upon will likely be uh, a model to a certain degree for other uh, transfers in other parts of the world. Uh, there, you know, we know that the US and the UK will also be discussing an agreement, and certainly, you know, part of this will affect uh, the UK-US data flows as well. Uh, there is, I think, you know, clearly, uh, you know, it's puzzling to, to realize that, at least from a purely legal perspective, there are more challenges now to the possibility of transferring data from the European Union to the US than it is the case for transfers to Russia or China, for example. That is really a very puzzling thought, I think, for all of us. Oh, and I think that's a very interesting point. Um, it really brings out that there are other sort of public goods that we're, or public benefits that we're looking at here, but apart from the impressive numbers on jobs and investment that will be protected or created. Actually, when we think about the importance of having a high volume of data and good interoperability of data for some of the innovations that just 
help us make societal progress, you know, to make us more energy and resource efficient, to innovate and produce new models and improve you know, healthcare and other other benefits. Actually, you can see this as being something that appeals to a much wider group of stakeholders than just those who care about economic growth and investment, as important as those are. Um, Maybe if I can very briefly, you know, comment on that. I think, you know, as you mentioned, the TTC, uh, I think, you know, there is a very important part of the conversation in the TTC that looks at uh, the uh, the twin transition, you know, the green and digital transition, and how. Uh, finding more convergence on digitalization will also help one of the arguably you know, the second top goal of this European Commission, which is the green transition. Uh, so you know there is there is a lot of space for uh, successful cooperation on that. Absolutely, and I, I think those are a couple of issues that uh, Germany is going to be trying to get some focus on actually at the, the G7 summit in a couple of months' time, um, trying trying to look more at an international co- collaboration around those twin transitions. Um, I'm very, very grateful to everyone for their for their time this afternoon. Um, I've le- learned a huge amount, both from the US and the, the EU perspective. Um, sure, we'll want to come back and uh, look at this again as a group once we have a, a final text and once we can really uh, map out the um, implementation and the implications. Um, so for now, I'll just say uh, th- thanks very much to all of the panellists, to John, Lucas uh, and Guido, and um, look forward to staying in touch with you all. Thank you. Thank you. For insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.